Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, the most impressive monuments, hanging gardens and superstructures were lauded, listed and visited as wonders of the world. And like seas, days of the week and deadly sins, there were always seven of them. More modern lists of wonders have included elaborate human constructions such as Machu Picchu and the Taj Mahal, or awesome natural phenomena such as the Grand Canyon or the Great Barrier Reef. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the guest I'm asking today is the broadcaster Annika Rice, who shot to fame in the 1980s, running, flying and chasing around the country in Channel 4's all-action game show Treasure Hunt. Since which time she's had many other TV and radio successes, including several series of Challenge Annika, which is a big hit on BBC One. Now, uh, knowing you a bit as I do, Annika, I would say you very much like a challenge. So Challenge Annika was a great title. It was a very convenient uh, title for me. And it was funny hearing um, you mention Treasure Hunt in the 80s and everything, because, of course, I had to, in my head, I have a huge career before that time, which is really significant to me. Yes. But I'm forever known for sort of uh, and and what the the sweet thing is that everyone just thinks of challenge and helicopter as a big and treasure hunt as a big amalgamation i was in a helicopter kenneth cundle was possibly there there was a scout hut you know it's just a an Mm. amalgamation of lots of programs which which is great um but yes um before that uh i was equally busy in a way well, let's let's come to that because uh, you have to select your seven wonders, and your first wonder is the University of Life, uh, which sounds like you had this tough bringing upbringing in the school of hard knocks, uh, the, the the real world polytechnic, you know. But uh, is is that right? So, University of Life means you like learning on the job rather than. At yeah. an actual university. Exactly that. And, um, you know, I don't want to make out myself, you know, there's no sob story, but I did have a pretty dysfunctional childhood and um, where the rug was constantly being pulled from under my feet. And I had it ingrained into me by my mother, who was deeply unhappy in this very dysfunctional family I lived in. You know, you've got to make the most of your life. Get out there and do stuff. And and there were also lots of money problems. You know, at the time I was at Croydon High School, you know, just life wasn't... I always felt like a round peg in a square hole completely. I never fitted in anywhere. And the thought of actually... Applying to university, which obviously, if you go to a high school, it's highly academic. They expect to shoehorn you through Oxbridge. It just wasn't going to happen. I just had to get away from this life I was in, away from all the financial problems and just make my own way. And so I, in a way, I had this vision that I was the heroine in the film of my life and I would 
go to the university of life, if you like. And I gave myself almost a time thing because all my friends were, you know, taking uh, their university entrance exams and they some of them sort of seemed to have things like ponies you know and and very nice parents who sort of sat behind a newspaper on a Sunday you know and and I just thought I'm going to leave that world behind because I just don't fit into it Mm. and I secretly applied to the BBC when I was 16. Can, can we just before we get there, can we just I noticed you went to more than one school and I just uh, just on the off chance something uh, extraordinary happened. Were you, were you the sort of child that was expelled from lots of schools or were you just no, your family no. travelling around? It took you to different uh, schools no. in Surrey. <laughs> what happened was that um, the school I was at, um, who were very accommodating of my dysfunctional life because I was looking after a small baby when I was sort of 11, 12 onwards. So I'd have to take her to nursery and. Uh, Whose baby was this? Not your baby at 11 or 12. Yeah, not (laughs) my own baby. Um, But anyway, the school I was at, which was this very nice sort of school in the village I lived, um, unfortunately, uh, the year group I was in decided to try and burn it down. And so they set fire to the curtains in the common room. The police were called and everyone was expelled almost on the spot for arson. Now, Mm. me and Anne Ward Lee were at piano lessons. (laughs) A couple of other people. So we turn up for school and there's literally four people. And so... It was unsustainable to to carry on. I mean, it was very good probably for the for the learning point of view, but I was very sporty and you can't really play a game of lacrosse with sort of two people. So um, I changed school. So that's why I changed school. It wasn't me that it was expelled. It was my entire year group. Wow, that's that's an extraordinary story. Sounds like you've got a well worked out alibi anyway in the in the music lessons. Honestly, Gov, it wasn't me. I was doing Chopin's Prelude in C or whatever. No, I just I just missed the whole action, though I was there by association. But actually, I was always quite a sort of goody goody at school because because I had so much responsibility as a as a as a young child. As I say, I I was looking after my sister. I cooked the family meals. I was really the family elastoplast in a way. And so uh, I didn't have time to go smoking in common rooms. No, no. I would I would imagined you might be sort of head girl or head of sport or some, something. But Yes, I was always very sporty and played lacrosse for the county and all that sort of stuff. But when I went to Croydon High School, the good thing was that it was very near um, my boyfriend, who I'd had for quite a few years, because... More, more a friend than a boyfriend, really. But I was so attached to him and his family because my, I just loved this normal family. Mm. And so, luckily, he lived quite near Croydon, so I could snuggle in with his family, and it gave me the confidence to apply to the BBC and just move on with my life, if you like. So I joined. I, you know, I went from this very sort of, you know, weird life where I'd only ever met people of my age who looked like me into, and into um, this extraordinary training um, programme with the BBC. And I went straight into the World Service. And within, you know, three weeks of my training, I had a stopwatch in my hand. I was in the studio on the line to India saying, uh, hello, is that Delhi? This is London. And Mark mm. Tully would come on. And I suddenly got such a, a feeling of the world. And right. People in saris in the canteen and Chinese people. And and at the time, I remember I, I saw Rocky Horror Show practically about 18 times. And I just thought, this is what it's all about. I just want to escape into the anonymity of the world, if you like. And I could leave everything behind. And then my boyfriend and I split up. So oh, I was no. so heartbroken that I just thought, after I'd done my two-year training, 
I just bought a one-way ticket to Hong Kong and just thought, I'll carry on my life there. All right. Well, we've, we've rather dwelt on the ball of your childhood and getting... I, I knew I was coming... I knew you went to Hong Kong when you were 19, which sounds like very enterprising. You yeah. come across as a very confident person, but it sounds like you were pretty confident even in your teens. I was very confident because I just didn't care. Hmm. You know, if you've got nothing to lose, you don't care. And Jeopardy was my middle name. It was, it was my default position. Um, and so... I, I, I joined, uh, you know, I joined the, um, I went off to Hong Kong. I bluffed my way into so many jobs, Clive, you mm. know, and all the time I was thinking, I must collect all these experiences because they're brilliant because one day I'll write a book. You know, I am, mm. it's quite a sort of weird thing to think. And uh, I got a job, you know, PR company, not even knowing what PR was, yeah. literally, uh, in, suddenly in charge of all these accounts. I suddenly had a sort of secretary and then I got a job in the newsroom for the local um, um, English-speaking news station and I was the sub-editor so I was writing the scripts for all the the news team Um, and then one day the newsreader was ill I said oh I'll do that yes I've done lots of that at the BBC and uh, there my presenting career was born because in a way I thought god this is much easier than being the slogger in the back room writing the scripts all I have to do is turn up and read the autocue. And, and were you okay reading autocue, especially in in Hong Kong, where presumably there's quite a lot of um, names you might not have come across that, that feature was, in the news? It was tricky, um, made more so by the fact that you, it was very much a DIY show, which is you know which put me in such good stead for all the rest of my career. You you control the foot the autocue with a foot pedal. Oh right. It meant if you you know put it down too quickly, you zoomed from Taiwan to Macau, losing yeah. several stories in the middle. And the very first, and there was only one Chinese camera operator, and that was it. So I had no way to communicate. And the first night, Spike Milligan was in the news station for something else, and he came and sat under under my desk by my feet, very quietly for the entire newscast. Oh, and also on the way to the. Um, newsroom I'd also run someone over by mistake it right. wasn't it wasn't really my fault but all the same it was a jangling start to my sure my, my did, the camera but did that it, feature as a news item did you have to read out and and, and finally uh, just outside this studio somebody got run over not too badly lots of people in Chimside Choi luckily it, I was driving very, very slowly and someone just walked in front of me and, you know, he was fine. But it was very dramatic and the police actually took me to the studio to get there in time for the news. So this fed into my adrenaline, my sense mm. of I just want to, you know, kill this. I just don't care what I do. I'm just going to have the most extraordinary experiences. Um, and so, you know, there it started. And, and after I finished reading the news, I used to go on to Run Run Shaw's studios and dub um, kung fu movies into sort of a terrible transatlantic English accent. And I was always the kind of serving woman too, because obviously kung fu movies only have very good parts for men. And yeah. So my only job was to say, excuse me, sir, can I hold your sword? <laughs> and we'd all be smoking away. It was, you know, we'd do that till two in the morning. I loved it. You know, this was so far removed from Croydon High School. I sure. Was so, this is, so, you, so you went to Hong Kong when you were 19. So you're talking about when you were 19, 20. How long, how long did you stay in Hong Kong? Three years. And I, yeah. and I did 
I mean, I made documentaries. I, I pr produced the drive time show on the local RTHK, um, you know, equivalent of the BBC out there. Mm. Not knowing how to produce, I used to edit tape with um, my nail scissors and sellotape, you know, on a yeah. U.S which is an old-fashioned uh, recording piece. That's when, that's when editing was done on physically with pieces yeah. of tape rather than on a computer. And I used to ring my friends back at the World Service and ask them to send me by snail mail, because obviously there was no internet or email. They'd send me old scripts <laughs> that had been on the world today or Outlook or whatever, and I just used to rehash them. <laughs> I'd written them. I mean, but I just didn't care. And, and that's what I mean by the university of life, because you just fling yourself at everything. Some people stick, some things stick, some things you find you're very good at, mm. <laughs> other things you're terrible at. Well, I, I don't know whether the, I think the politest term I think could describe this as, as you had a lot of chutzpah. You, you, you're daring. You were, you were ready to do it, even though it might be borderline um, bad activity. Absolutely. I got involved with a, um, a, a terrible cult called the Children of God, only because a lot of men I knew used to get involved with this flirty fishing that they used to do in bars in the Hilton. So I went all the way to Macau to meet them because I thought this will go into my memoir one day. Um, and, you know, I always felt very safe. No one ever tried to uh, take advantage of me ever. I don't think, you know, mm. they were quite respectful of me because I think I must have been a rather weird person, this very young person pretending to be 25, though I clearly wasn't, um, and, and quite safe. I was always considered, you know, not a threat to anyone. So mm. that's why I got away with stuff, I think. Well, we rather skipped over the fact that uh, Spike Milligan sat beneath you during a, a broadcast. I, I hope that was just him being wackily amusing rather than anything more salacious. Uh, yeah, he's just being charmingly wackily yeah. amusing. That's what I mean. You know, yeah. terrible things always happen to other people, but no one ever tried. To, you know, I never had any terrible sexism or n no occasions of anything like that. Um, I, I just was obviously on a, a lucky run. So by the time I came back from Hong Kong, I had done, you know, two years at the BBC, three years in Hong Kong, University of Life, tick, you know. I'd... Well, we're going to have to move on to other wonders. But before we do, I should note in passing that later in life, uh, <laughs> you have done, uh, I suppose, a, a university or a college. You've, you've been to Chelsea Art School for quite a few years to study yeah. art. Yeah, no, I I did that um, in in the nineteen nineties when I when I gave up work for a while to to be with the kids at home and I I went and studied fine art, but it was really funny when I got back from Hong Kong I went I met up with the um, I went into BBC News to meet mm. this I think his name was Bernard Joe with my cassettes of me reading the news mm. and um, I said please employ me you know because I always had this thing of having to to move my life along quickly and earn some money. And he just looked at the tapes. And I, I mean, honestly, I looked about 12. Mm. And he just said, it's just not going to work on the BBC at the moment. Yeah. Um, but it was, no, it was a very, very intense, weird period of my life that one day I'll write a book about or make a film about because you couldn't move it. All right. Well, let's, let's, let's come to, let's, let's come to um, Treasure Hunt um, before we leave this wonder. So... All these skills and bluffing and broadcasting skills. How did you get the job of being that? For, for people who don't know the program, um, there was 
it was a challenge to the people con- in contesting trying to find locations around the country. And somebody had the idea that the best and the cheapest or the most efficient way to do this would be have somebody, and it turned out to be you, being flown around the country looking for these clues to find the castle or the canal or the or the burial site and physically yeah. do it. Can you imagine a more exciting job to go straight into? I mean, it was really thrilling. Um, you know, I came back from Hong Kong. I started as a reporter at Thames Telly, actually, in the interim. And then I, I got, I heard about this, and I, I heard about this audition, and um, I was sent along to Hyde Park, and they were looking for male sportsmen to, to be the skyrunner in this exciting new Channel 4 series. And um, the cameraman, Graham, and I raced around Hyde Park and I literally heard him say to the producer afterwards, it'll have to be Annie. She's the only one I could keep up with because the other men were very, you know, arrogant <laughs> and just wanted to show how fast they could run. Whereas yeah. we just had a bit of a laugh. But And the, cam- the poor old cameraman obviously had the camera to carry, which is always the uh, people forget about it when in like mountaineering films, that there's the mountaineer doing it and the cameraman has got a camera. God, we had so much fun. But the weirdest thing was no one before the first day of filming ever said, how do you think you'll be in a helicopter? Oh, and by the way, there are no doors. You know, and there was no health and safety. I was just flung into the North Sea, up and down mountains. But again, by then, I I was so full of adrenaline and jeopardy from my Mm. Hong Kong years. This, This just carried on with it if you like so it played well into to how I'd become and also I'd found my voice I was just confident you know so I was still very young sort of 23 or whatever but I had a a sort of confidence probably that might have taken me a long time to achieve if I'd gone to the University of Birmingham or something. Well well this definitely put you on the map and uh, you, you had a unique presence on uh, on television and that led to the other things. Yeah, well, I mean, up till that moment, Clive, I'm not joking, but uh, women on telly were either draped across a car on the mm. gold shot in a, yes. in a fur-lined bikini, yeah. or they uh, were like Sue Lawley, who was my heroine, you know, behind a, a news desk or something. Mm. And and so, you know, those the programmes I did really broke the mould because they put women absolutely at the centre of the action, in control, and you... you Really, that was the first time that had ever been seen on television. It caused a sensation. So anyway, I'm on the way. This is incredible, actually. These guys know what they're doing. They are lowering me down on two ropes in a sort of basket. Um, and it's sort of I'm rushing against the mountainside, but they're totally in control. I mean, what a way to get a clue. All right, well, that's that's a good note, but maybe we'll break the mood by going on to your second wonder of the world. What is that? Oh, well, should we let's let's have a change of scene. Let's go back uh, to early childhood and Cindy. Cindy. Oh, Cindy. Now a lot of people have heard of Barbie doll, but oh, I, I think St- Cindy's still going. But Cindy and Barbie were deadly rivals. Uh, head, to head, head to head rivals. Barbie was full of American glamour, lots of lipsticks, very pointy, big breasts. Mm. Cindy was a bit more homely. Um, came out in 1963 her boyfriend Paul was released two two years later she had a a, a sister called Patch and Cindy and Patch why they're so significant to me and they're literally on my desk and I I still have the original dolls the original clothes all my original all my original books from my childhood you know the same editions of what Katie did, or the railway children that I read in the sixties, because these this band of characters 
became my family. You know, it's really important for me to have this family. Yeah. I can't underestimate how important Cindy is for me. In fact, I did Grayson's Art Club last year on Channel 4, yeah. and I was given the subject of family, and I created a six-foot freeze and actually started with Cindy and Patch. And um, the first thing I did with Cindy was I tore off the... Um, jump the all-in-one dung, you know, uh, boiler suit that Action Man had and put that on Cindy. So immediately she was all-in-one, ready for action. She had a little buggy. I mean, yeah. talk about nicking someone's identity in later life. But this family were very important to me because I had um, a weird situation at home in that both my mother and father would never um, divulge any information about their past. So I had no hinterland. I had no aunties, mm. cousins, uncles, grannies, you know, all those things that most people would have. Yeah. The nearest I got to a granny was my mum saying to me one day while I was washing up, uh, my mother died yesterday. And it just always gave me such a sense of shame because I didn't know why all these people were such secrets. Oh, right. And did you ever discover why they were secret? Uh, no, Clive, it's been a big thing in my life. You know, it's so weird when you've grown up with such a secret, you almost can't um, embark on finding out what the answer is. Um, it's, it's very, un people won't sort of really understand it, I don't think. But well, you know how some people know that they will discover they were adopted and some people yeah. just leave it at that. But a lot of people, it becomes quite a quest to track down yeah. either to meet their, their birth parents or at any rate to identify yes. who they well, were. I I just feel my, my mother was evacuated during the war. She she grew up in working class Deptford and she was evacuated to Leafy, Kent or Surrey or somewhere. And she, she obviously got there and thought, well, this is better. <laughs> I can only think. <laughs> and didn't so, want to go back. Didn't want to go back. And I know there were sisters and brothers and, you know, I, there's a lot of people I was never party to. But then to have my father with the same thing that I never met his brother and my cousins. Oh from his side of the family, it became so normal for me, uh, but it did leave an aching void because I'm a very tribe-like person. I like to be in a team. So my team, back to Cindy, mm. you know, that was my team. And this gang of, you know, Katie Carr from what Katie did, Cousin Helen, Bobby mm. from the Railway Children, these characters, we I, I climbed onto the uh, garage roof and I used to just sit there for days on end with this imaginary family. But really? you, you mentioned you had a family because you did have a, was it a younger sister or a younger brother who you yes, looked after? I, yes, I did. And, and that was really important, my little baby sister. So when I, you know, but she wasn't born till I was 11. Mm. So up to 11, I had this frantically trying to create my sisters and, uh, you know, uncles and aunties mm. and people that um, I could call my tribe. So I've you know, it's really, really important to me, family, but I'm a great believer that actually family is just your community. You know, it's just so I have lots of amazing communities in my life, my painting community. Mm. In fact, I went to see a, an amazing show in my early 20s called Chicken Shed. Um, oh, yeah. And it's it's a immerse, an inclusive theatre company where disabled kids are, are, are act alongside on stage with able-bodied kids and everyone helps each other. And I looked on that stage and I just saw a family. Yeah. Yeah. That is exactly what community is. And that is what on the spot gave me the idea for Challenge Annika. And I, I wrote it down and ran into the BBC and said to Michael Grade, can I do this programme? And he right. said, yes, because I just thought, you know, that's what it's about. Community doesn't, so people, you know, mustn't, mustn't feel 
uh, worried if they've got a dysfunctional family or things aren't right at home because you can find it elsewhere. And, and Challenge Annika was a big success for you in, in two ways. One, you presented it, but it was your your idea. So it's been done elsewhere in the world. Um, so that's yeah. that, it's your concept. It's been a huge thing. It's literally my life's work because it was about 30 years ago now. Um, and I'm still in touch with most of those projects. And when I say in touch, you know, really love those volunteers and the, the people I met who are all now 30 years yeah. old. And there's just such a, a lovely feeling of legacy. And wherever I am in the UK, I'll always drop in on a, a challenge project, which will still be going strong. And then we sold the format in Europe. I had um, ABC in uh, New New York made uh, did a did a challenge Annika with Erin Brockovich. Yeah. And I had this um, extraordinary, surreal thing where I had to go to New York and try and teach Erin Brockovich to be a television presenter because she'd never done that sort of work before. <laughs> so we're running around Central Park and I'm just, you know, it's very difficult to explain to someone to be themselves in front of a camera. It sounds so obvious, but it's... It doesn't it's suit every actor. Just in case anyone's listening to this who hasn't seen Challenge Annika, or what sort of projects are you... Would your top project or two that you you did what you built things what, what? we built things we built um we built an amazing indoor arena for riding for the disabled in a in a city part of london uh which is huge and magnificent where disabled kids can go and learn to ride uh we went out to romania and renovated an orphanage we actually went out to croatia once and it was after the home wars home no more and um there was a a school absolutely raised to the ground and in a terrible mess and we just sort of uh, cracked on and, and helped uh, renovate that and restore it and all the time we had serb snipers in the hills trained on us so we had mm. to have the united nations protecting us and we all wrote letters home <laughs> left them in our hotel because we just thought we'd never get out of there alive so there were a lot of adventures and but mostly the projects were very UK based and and using the community to build something for the community. You know? I, I see. Well, just one last thing about Cindy before we move on. Um, so when your sister came along, did you put Cindy to one side and all this these sort of fictional family members or or do they carry on? No, they carried on in parallel. So while I was looking after my sister and, and, and really leading quite a grown up life, um, mm sorting a lot of things out in the family I was still always secretly playing with my cinders I mean really up to the age of five they had to the sorry up to the age of 15 yeah um, very significant to me and as I say they're they're, they're they're people as far as I'm concerned are you actually going to send for some sort of paramedic to come around after this and take me away no no I, I'm the your family history history than your family is is quite a sad one, and it might might have broken, uh, you know, one person. You might be telling a story of how, but in fact, it seems yes. to have strengthened you or inspired you to take hold of your life. Yes, because I just found out that um, I was very good at this family community thing myself. So wherever I was, even as a young child, I always had loads of kids around me. I'd be telling them stories. You know, it was just funny mm. enough. It fed into what I did in later life. You know. Uh, which is very much embracing that community thing. Or oh, who knows, Clive? Honestly, it was it was so weird the whole thing. Looking back on it, um, but anyway. But I definitely I can see where I came from. I can see the position I'm at now. Yes. I can I can work out why I'm like I am. 
Can I just stop you for a second? Bit of work. Hang on, what's going on here? Your next challenge, Annika. This is the toughest one you've ever done. I don't believe this. At nine o'clock on Wednesday, the 8th of September, join the children of Pack Rats in the former Yugoslavia on the first day of their new school term. That's the easy bit. P.S. Their school has been destroyed in the war. Renovate it and take as much relief as you can to help rebuild their lives. It is the most difficult one you've ever done. Is this done. for real? It's for real, yeah. Well, I, I hope at any rate in these first <laughs> couple of wonders we've established that, uh, as with a lot of people who have overnight success, there's a lot of uh, development that goes into it and um, hard work, enterprise and, uh, uh, and a foundation before you get to that overnight time. But let's go on to your third wonder. Ah. Uh, oh. Blue, Clive, the yeah. colour blue. And I, and I know I've always been obsessed with this because I've got all my old diaries from when I was six, seven, eight, right through all my teenage years. I used to document everything obsessively, probably in a, as a way of anchoring myself into this very weird world I felt I was in. Um, and blue, my friends always used to give me blue things on my birthdays. It, I think it genuinely can cause the body to produce chemicals that are sort of calming and release sort of real feelings of calm and peace and tranquility. And I, I feel it. And, um, you know, I, I've, I love everything about it. I have a, a mood wall in one of the downstairs room in the house. And I just always, I'm always painting it a different shade of blue. Mm. Everything in the house is blue. Um, I'll, I'll get up in the morning and I'll dye in the washing machine a duvet blue or I'll get some um, leather dye and, and dye a chair blue. <laughs> and I'll, I even painted the paving stones in the garden, little different blues on different little squares. They look amazing. So to me, blue is the only colour that resonates with me. And I paint now with Maggie Hambling, the, the amazing... Um, probably our greatest living painter painter somehow seemed to have bluffed my way into her master class and um she used to get you know go for god's sake rice she pulled on her cigarette yeah. put the effing head in or you know why is it blue yeah. <laughs> and now i've sort of been allowed i've 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 earned my blue spurs and still more or less everything i paint is blue i mm. see flesh that's blue you know it's just how i am Okay. I, love, I love blue. I can't have a word against it. Well, I, I assumed when you selected the colour blue that that was that just related to your painting, but it seems to permeate your entire life. It permeates my entire life, and I just find it very restful. I remember when I went to uh, Marrakesh, and I went to the Marjorelle Garden, and I nearly collapsed because every bit of the garden all the fountains all the walls different shade of this fantastic blue which is um it's it's a blue modeled on the lapis uh, you know the the lapis lazuli, sort of lazuli which is yeah. very rare and found in afghanistan back in the day and it, you know it was became blue became a, a very costly commodity to, to make that mm. pigment and so artists have always been trying to to recreate it and uh, during the 1950s the french artist eve klein um, got together with a um a, a dealer in paints called edouard adam and they produced this successful formula so there's a blue called eve klein blue and then, as I say, Jacques Marjorelle, who has this beautiful garden in um, 
Marrakesh, which was then actually owned by Yves Saint Laurent. He's got a different, slightly similar blue called Marjorelle blue. Right. So if you go into our garage, there's just blue plate paint everywhere. I is love it. Really to my mind, there's nothing as exciting as opening a tin of paint. <laughs> nothing. In fact, when my dad, who had terrible Alzheimer's, you know, and really lived in a parallel universe, one of the things I used to do with him, we'd, we'd sit and look through paint swatches because one of the things I could engage him with was going, oh, so, Dad, what do you think? What about that shed? Look, let's have a look at these, you know, the, the colour charts. Yeah. What, what could we use for that? And what about this for a tie? And we spent hours doing this together. It was a really lovely moment of my life. And I always remember saying to him one day, Dad, what do you think my name is? And he looked at me so tenderly and just said, Dulux, which sort of broke my heart. <laughs> but equally, it was absolutely right that I should be called Dulux. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. What's your fourth wonder of the world? Oh, do you know what? I thought I'd throw in the Isle of Wight. The Isle of Wight? Okay. Yeah, because I've... I used to go on holiday there when I was a child. My dad would load up his Zephyr, light the pipe, and we'd get in and be stifled by cigarette and pipe fumes until we emerged spluttering the other end. It's it's not an ambitious holiday um, destination, Clive, but it'll feel right. I don't know yeah. whether you've ever been there, but I, I can't hear a word against it because it's just like a perfectly formed travel experience in itself. Um, I've done so much travel in my career. Um, I mean, I, I used to do Wish You Were Here, which was a holiday programme on ITV, the holiday programme on BBC One. Mm. I, I cover China, you know, Africa. I did so many trips. So I You now, never went to the Isle of Wight in those programmes. So so yeah, that was a game exotic as a, as a 
I did go to the Isle of Wight. Now I covered the whole, there's really not many, it's almost embarrassing if people go, oh, I've just come back from the Opera Band of Delta. I have to stop myself from going. Yes, well, of course, I was there in 1982. I just mm. have to stop myself. But the Isle of Wight, you know, it's tiny, but it within the Isle of Wight is everything you could ever want from a destination. It's got a microclimate, so it's about five degrees warmer than anywhere else. Um, it's it's got chalk cliffs and beautiful sandy beaches. It's mm. got history. It's got red squirrels, which is unlike it's, most of England. There's, you know, you'll have a flyby of overwintering Brent geese one moment. Um, it, it's just gorgeous. Um, so many large flocks of wildfowl. People, you know, love bird watching there. Mm. Um, divers and grebes and flora and fauna. Um, it's, it's really very special. Really All right. Well, I have been there in uh, later years, but it, it always features in my when children of today are talking about going on school trips and they say, oh, we went to Vietnam for our school trip or we're going to Mar or these sort of exotic things that uh, modern just children sometimes. I say, yeah, we, we had a school trip when I was at school. We went round the Isle of Wight. We didn't even land on the Isle of Wight. We went on a boat trip which sailed round the Isle of Wight back to, I don't know, Portsmouth or wherever it was, and then back on the train and back home again. That was I, as exciting as it got in my day, in my school. Yes, no, that's all people know. And so it hasn't, you know, it's not talked of with the love that I talk about it with. Yeah. But, you know, it's you can, there are paleontologists love it there because obviously there's fossils, there's mm. dinosaur fossils, there's Roman ruins, and obviously the, the huge influence that the Victorians had in it. There's miles of cliffs and sandy beaches and steep chines, which are these mm. coastal gorges. It's absolutely staggering. So do you spend uh, a lot of time there? Yeah, I do. I absolutely love it. Um, you know, it, it's it's there's something just very gentle about it. It is slightly 1950s in a lot of ways still. But, you know, it has got quite a good sort of arty scene. Of course, there were the famous sort of Isle of Wight Festival in 1970 with Jimi Hendrix and Bob yeah. Dylan and everyone, where I, as a child, used to hang around the hotel where Bob Dylan was staying, hoping to catch a glimpse. And at this time, I have no idea who he is. I'm just hanging around because everyone else is hanging around. But, you know, that that's that sort of you know, got the artistic thing moving in a way. But um, you didn't, you, did you bump into him or, or, to, any, or to anybody? Um... No, I was about 11, yeah. just, you know. But you've got Tennyson Down, which is this spectacular whale-back ridge of chalk um, that rises to about 500 feet. Uh, huge views. And, of course, it's named after Alfred, um, Lord Tennyson. Um, and he had a bit of a community set up um there was Charles Dickens wrote I think it was what was it David Copper Cop, David Copperfield um in the Isle of Wight mm. um you know there was a gang there was a bit of a a, a, a sort of I don't know how you describe it but um oh. artist community yeah sort of commune going on and, to... and the Queen Victoria and Prince Albert uh, they 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 loved it there yeah they loved it there absolutely loved it there. he died obviously but... um and there's a fringe there now uh yes until he died but yeah lewis carroll edmund lear they all they all went and wrote there and were very inspired by it and and you can really see why if you if you go and visit i mean the the crime is that white link the ferry company or the, well, the ferry companies are you know owned by 
overseas investors. And, and so the prices are just ridiculous with no love and concern for the community of people who live there. Are there still hovercraft taking people to and from the Isle of Wight? A hovercraft, which takes about 10 minutes. But again, that's expensive if it's a whole family. You know, every, everything is just an expensive place to get to, um, which is, you know, why it's, it's not a... It's, I think it's a, not a very low per capita income. You know, it's a, not a rich island at all. Um, but, but that's why you know, it's difficult to get on and off and encourage trade and manufacturing. That probably contributes to its character, though, doesn't it? It's a bit separate. If, well, if there was, a, say, a bridge or, or if such a thing were possible then, and you could just drive on and off, it would be just like a, another bit of Hampshire, another exactly. bit of the south of England. It is. You do get on that hovercraft, you land the other end and you just feel you've just, um, you know, you know, gone back to... 1950? Yes. There's a lovely um, Edith Wharton quote, which is set wide the window, let me drink the day. And I always think of that when I'm in the Isle of Wight. I've reset myself. I'm I'm in in touch with the tides and I just feel very centred and very happy. And it's where all my kids have had their holidays um, instead of dragging them around the world too much, which Mm. I always associate with work. You know, we've had very basic bucket and spade holidays. Oh, they say, thank you. Thank you, Mother dear. We didn't want to go to Marrakesh with you. We didn't want to go to Morocco. We, we didn't want to go to Tuscany. We're so happy to go to the Isle of Wight. as well, Clive. Do you know, I had it in my contracts back in the day that I could always take my kids with me and someone to help me look after them while I was working. They don't remember the trip to Hong Kong or wherever it was. They, I mean, honestly, they... Yeah. So I, I took them round with me more, I guess, for myself, really, to, to otherwise I'd never have seen them. <laughs> Actually, we're in the Isle of Wight and we're flying over the Solent just outside Cowes. Below me, we've got the most wonderful sight of yachts spinning across. It's a lovely breezy morning. There's a couple of scoops going by with their spinnakers full up. Cowes is, of course, is the world-famous yachting centre, famous too for boat building, even boats that fly, like the flying boat and the hovercraft. It's a, it's a lovely island. It only measures 23 miles by 30 miles, so it's very small, but very picturesque. So I think it's going to be a good show today. We, uh, at least in the order that I uh, had them uh, in, in advance, we skipped over uh, a wonder, which was the glory of the evening light, which might well, fit in with the Isle of Wight at this point. So tell, tell me about the glory of the evening glory, light. Yes, the glory of the evening light. You know, I don't know about you, but sunset at the end of the day is just truly magnificent we live in london on the river and the sun sets over the river and it's just the refrain in our house wherever the kids are and they're all grown up and left now i go oh my god the glory of the evening light tonight <laughs> you know it encourages them to share their glory of the evening light i yeah. i find it just such a heart moment you know and and for everyone you know everyone loves the sunset you can drive to your favorite spot mm. you might bottle of wine and just drink it in and the colors of the sunset result from this thing called scattering which is when um, molecules and small particles Mm. in the atmosphere change the direction of the light rays causing them to scatter and create these extraordinary things you know this this absolute kaleidoscope of colors which is just so lovely and there's just something very serene it's the end of the day which I always like because I love going to bed um, you know, it's just there's nothing like a breathtaking um, sunset. So it's very much I'm sure it'll slightly be on my gravestone if I ever had one, just the glory of the evening light, because it's the, the refrain. I'm sure if you asked any of my children, their degree, oh, right. it's, uh, you know, me in the sunset. Right. I just feel refreshed when I see a sunset. 
It's a lovely thing. Well, uh, I'm glad you've uh, mentioned seeing this, the glory of the evening night in London, uh, simply because there are a lot of places in the world that people get terribly excited. Oh, we have this marvellous sunset oh, here. Yes. And you think, well, actually, you can get sunsets anywhere in the world. And, well, and a bit of pollution that you get in a city actually contributes actually adds to it. To it. Yeah. It adds to it beautifully. And I've seen sunsets. <clears throat> I've filmed you know, so much around the world and I've sat watching extraordinary sunsets in Africa or um, in Colorado, wherever I am. But I've always been with a film crew and it's not quite the same. <laughs> say, it's not quite as romantic to say mm. to your sound man, oh, isn't this beautiful? You know, so I've always, I, what I love about a British glory of the evening light is that I'm usually with friends. Friends or family, yeah, rather than, well, these, well, film crew can be jolly people I as well. I film crew, but at the end of the day, it's just, you know, it's lovely to share something so beautiful okay. in a romantic way, I think. And what about uh, maybe you don't ever see this, or you don't see this so often? What about the sunrise? Uh, sunrise, similarish um, colours. Yes, sunrise equally beautiful, and I love that as well. But it is the the, the glory of the evening light because it's just the way it hits our house, and it just streams through the um, windows we have, and so you have this lovely view of the river, and and this sofa which is just bathed in hot. Sunlight, and when the, my children were very little, mm. I'd just lay them when they just had their bath, you know, on a towel with this warm bathe of light over them, and it was just that, my most sort of spiritual memories of the whole thing of having small children was this this calm we all felt when we were bathed in this light. We're going to come. We're going to get the paramedics. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're going to we're going to come back to the children in due course, but we've got. Uh, uh, we've now done five wonders, so let's go on to your sixth wonder, who is a who is a broadcaster. <laughs> David Attenborough. I mean, if you've been watching The Life of Plants, yes. the first week he's up in a sort of crane <clears throat> over the rainforest in South America. And then the second programme, he was rowing down the Amazon River or something. And then and then the third programme, he's sort of lying nonchalantly looking at tiny plants. I love this guy. Yeah, he's had a pacemaker fitted. He's had double knee replacement, um, and he says, "If I was earning money by hewing coal, I would be very glad indeed to stop." But I'm not. I'm swanning around the world looking at the most fabulously interesting things. Such good fortune. Yeah. Um, he does. You know what I love is that he's being allowed to carry on working because you know that is extraordinary. Mm. Um, I, and I just hope, you know, you don't often hear of women of 95 still sort of working, but I'm hoping that, uh, you know, that that's hope for all of us, that if you're an expert or if you're good at something, you can just carry on doing it. And, you know, I love the way when he joined the BBC uh, as in the fledgling TV service, he didn't own a TV of his own, didn't mm. really know what it was, as no one did. He'd only seen one programme in his life, but he's just part of, broadcasting history isn't he and he's part of the BBC I've known since I joined it in 1976 which is 46 years ago but I what the one thing I feel very um, I can share with him is that he was actually discouraged um, from appearing on camera because Mary Adams his boss thought his teeth were too big <laughs> and when when a producer when I was doing my training course said you know you're you know, you're busy and then uh, on the world service here, but have you ever thought of being on TV? And I went, no way, no. But he, they said, can we try you out? And so I was sent to the Bristol Natural History Unit mm. to be tried out for something to do with um, animal magic or one of those programmes. Yeah. Afterwards, the producer wrote to my boss saying, 
not too bad as in, in the audition, but the trouble is she'll never have a career in broadcasting because of the gap in her teeth. And I kept the letter. And it was such a put down. I just remember thinking, well, I didn't want to be on television anyway. What <laughs> Bloody rude. <laughs> so I loved when I when I found that out about David Attenborough that he also had teeth gate. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't have a gap in your tooth anymore, so things have no, things have to, oh no, not the same gap. No, but yeah. exactly. no, I know what you mean. I know it's extraordinary. Once once somebody's face and indeed their voice is recorded, but their face is put on camera, everybody feels entitled to, they've got an opinion about you and say, well, yeah. that's a bit That's a bit too this or that's a bit too that. But, yeah. you know, nobody knows who's going to be good on television, really. And uh, yeah, but, you, you, you know, yeah. luckily we've gone past those days where you had to sort of be physically so perfect or the right shape or the right this or the right that. Because now if someone said, you know, you can't be in our show because the gap on your teeth is too revolting <laughs> i could probably sue them for millions you know so we've got david attenborough uh he to be honest he's not the first time uh he's been mentioned as part of the the wonders of the world and uh yeah. and i'm happy to in- endorse that i suppose his age is is sort of epic isn't it because he's about the same age as the queen he's about the yeah. same age as the bbc he's yeah. been a uh, a presenter, a producer, a controller of BBC Two. And then he decided, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be in control of things. I just want to make these fantastic programmes. Yeah. And it, what is it about him, do you think? His authority, his, the vo- his voice quality is his so important. voice quality, the, he's kind, isn't he? There's a mm. kindliness and a, an absolute authenticity and sincerity about him, which I think is, you know, if someone can speak and you and you see truth in their eyes, uh, mm. They're a good television presenter. Sure, he's all, and although he's of an age now, he 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 retains that sort of it's almost boyish enthusiasm for the yeah. subject that he's telling us about. And exactly, and and all the things I remember from my childhood, like you know, Man Alive, uh, you know, the Monty Python's Flying Circus, mm. Arena. Um, he's he's he was Civilization, Center Man. He's in charge of the BBC. Mm. Time and it's because of him that all these programs started up. So, um, what a legacy! What a legacy! And as I say, it would be just great if if we could all feel that we can carry on broadcasting um, at, if we're still good at it. You know, end off. The ability of plants to reclaim the most unlikely sites is truly extraordinary. Given time, they will attract animals, rebuild complex communities, and even reclaim bricks and mortar for the natural world. Thank you very much. So we've got to, we've done six of your wonders. We've got one more. What's your seventh This one? is a bit weird, but I, I would like to put giving birth down because honestly, what a blinking wonder of the world that is and how has evolution not caught up with us? As, as <laughs> I mean, other anim- mammals don't have the same problems that we do. Two reasons. Their heads aren't so large relative to their body size and they don't walk upright. Yes. And, and so we're just caught in this ridiculous evolutionary wasteland mm. <laughs> of, of not catching up with everything. Um, and I didn't realise it was. it's actually a thing. I wrote it. Where is it? It's... it's Called oh it's called the obstetric dilemma. Yeah. Because, um, to run fast we need a narrow pelvis, but to give birth easily we need a wide one. Yeah. But if hip, women had hips any wider than they do now, they wouldn't be able to run. So I'm lucky that I've managed to give birth <laughs> and run. But 
Um, the natural selection hasn't happened because, of course, a lot of people have elective cesareans now. People yeah. who've got maybe very narrow hips, so that gene hasn't sort of been washed away because, you know, back in the day, just everyone died. I mean, it's the most brutal, extraordinary thing, isn't it? How how is it? How has evolution not happened that, that we have to carry around a bit like marsupials, some little handbag where we could just get our little baby out of that would just. Really? Well, it's I mean, a balance, it's... isn't it? Because we, we, we need to have big heads uh, because of the sort of yeah. creature we Just... are. But the bigger yeah. the head, the more difficult the birth. Uh, but if we have it uh, too big, then the, the, the mother will perish. Yeah. But if the head yeah. isn't big enough, then the baby is so is not developed enough that it takes, as it is, it takes years to take a baby from, from, you know, puking and muling into um, something like man or woman's estate. So it's a... Uh, um, you're still working on it in your case, aren't you? <laughs> what, what, what do you mean? I haven't made it to man's estate yet. <laughs> yeah, but, but women with very narrow pelvis would not have survived birth, you know, 100 no. years ago. Um, they do now, and they pass on their genes encoding for a narrow pelvis to their daughters. And, 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 and because of, of cesarean and, and modern interventions, thank goodness, but it has meant that we haven't really moved forward on that. But... You know, I don't know. Well, things have moved forward a bit in the sense that there was a time when women just kept giving birth to loads and loads of babies because you needed to have 10 or 12 to hope that one or two might survive. And generally, uh, not generally, but quite often, the, the, it killed the mother or, or killed yeah. the last child or both. So uh, so we've got it a bit better now in, in the modern world. We most, yeah. most babies, thankfully, survive and, and almost every mother survives uh, the experience. Oh, I always remember giving birth to my first son. <laughs> Luckily, because at the time I was so intensely uh, well known, it was a bit of a nightmare. So there were always press camping on our doorstep. So I went to the Portland Hospital, you know, which is where sort of royalty is, mm. <laughs> just to have some sort of security. And even then, some photographers were dressing up as doctors and trying to get in. Yes. <laughs> me breastfeeding or whatever but it was um it was it was so dramatic because of this all this you know people trying to break into my room and everything but I and I and after Thomas was born I had a, a hemorrhage and so I had to you know be treated for a few days there which was utterly gorgeous and my little baby was just taken away and looked after these lovely Irish midwives for some reason they all seem to be Irish and all I want to do is take them all home with me and I remember one morning when I sort of came to probably on about day two and I woke up feeling much better and I thought oh and there was a room service menu and I thought lovely smoked salmon scrambled so I rang room service and said oh hello yeah room seven or whatever could I have the coffee and the smoked salmon scrambled egg oh and also could you bring up my baby (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know how else to find my baby but it did mean that we had this wonderful four-day start to life and that by the time we both left we were so rested and calm and recovered whereas you know can be very brutal that that first day or two. I think that's so fantastic. So so the wonder of giving birth. It's the wonder that it's, it, it even happens because it's so difficult. But for yeah. you, it is. A, it was a wonderful experience. 
Um, what was yeah. it a joy to have the baby as well as the joy to have the room service? Joy, and I loved you, Doctor, who understood the word epidural very yeah. thoroughly. So, you know, the whole thing was lovely. And then my husband was just positioned on my right hand side with my lipstick so that I, you know, I just yeah. kept it. It was absolutely lovely. Um, but, you know, it is brutal and in the animal world as well. So they haven't done, you know, a lot better, have they? No. Um, well, uh, I- there's. Four species that 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 um, die soon after giving birth: the octopus, the squid, salmon, and the common mayfly. I mean, All right, you know, All right. Not well, great. There's the black widow spider as well, who uh, mates with the male and then eats him. That's the. Uh, yes, that, that's, that's all. Right. Um, the, can I tell you about the spotted hyena? Females uh, give birth through a narrow penis-like enlarged clitoris, and their offspring emerge from this almost indistinguishable from the male penis of the species. Right. And you, 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 you mentioned this, why? Is it... just it's, interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting it? fact. Interesting fact about giving birth. It just doesn't seem very straightforward. Well, I, well, I was what I was thinking is that uh, as a, I was present for the birth of all three of my children, and it is a wonderful moment uh, if you're the father watching this new uh, creature uh, come into the world. But of course, I'm not in the position, the, the agony, the difficulty. So I think fathers do experience the wonder of the moment in a way that perhaps it's hard, I'm, I'm imagining, it's hard for the mother actually going through it to uh, to look back on. Well, it's a, it's a hell of a thing, isn't it? That, that nine months of pregnancy and your body sort of stretched in all sorts of directions. And then, and you know, and it's there's then the recovery period. It's, it's a mm. thing. It's a thing. It's a full time thing. Um, having said that, um, I was I, you know, after Thomas was born, I I did zoom back to jumpsuit shape quite quickly because I always remember I had the challenge Annika, you know, producer saying, Come on, we gotta get back on location. And I remember there's a I don't know where we are, Ayrshire or somewhere, and I'm running up a hill and I turn to the camera and go, This can't be right, I've just had a baby. <laughs> Oh, my God. Yes. Anyway, it's not quite the same. It's so stressful. But the time of my first baby being born, I was a barrister and I'd been in court during the day, but then on a Friday. But then um, on the Saturday, I was recording two episodes of Whose Line Is It Anyway? And so one of the people I had to call uh, to tell him that uh, the birth had happened was my producer, who because the baby wasn't born until about five in the morning so i was able to phone him up eventually and say yes the baby's been well quick how, how soon can you get to the studios all right you know it's my first child let me just enjoy and so i arrived and recorded the program with no no sleep at all but i still think, I think it was one of my best recordings so i was beaming beaming with pleasure i bet you haven't had your birth on telly though because I always remember just before I was about to give birth I was about eight months pregnant I walked through the sitting room and this used to happen a lot there were just so many people like Bobby Davro or Mike Yarwood impersonating me the whole time <laughs> anytime I walked past the television there was someone yeah. jumpsuit the Carling Fat Labour lad they had an actress flinging herself mm. off a cliff and falling into the sea and then you know the camera crew would come out of the sea and they'd Two old guys would go, I bet she mm. drinks Carlin Black Lady or whatever. And Spitting Image decided to, uh, and you're not told no. in advance, you just walk to the room and there you are, the latex puppy, puppet, yeah. pu- puppet, going, oh my goodness, my waters are broken, I'm going to have a baby. And then <laughs> Kenneth Kendall things into action. And it's the funniest thing. It makes us all weep with laughter now. At the time, I just thought. How dare they intrude into your personal life? 
very funny because Kenneth Kendall is literally going, okay, Annie's baby, you're in the book now. <laughs> Keep going, you're doing very well. <laughs> well, it, I, I, um, yeah. I'm, we've come to the end of our time, but I think we've got through a lot of your life and a lot of your wonders. Um, uh, thank you for sharing your seven wonders with me. I have to choose the, the wonder of wonders from your list of seven, the Ooh. one which struck me as particularly Ooh. wonderful, as you described on this podcast. Yes. And there's no question about it. Your last one, giving birth, has to trump all the others. It is, it is an extraordinary okay. thing, and yet it's an everyday thing because... Uh, and it's a it's a moment of magic and wonder when it happens. And yet, if, if you think about it, millions, billions of times, uh, this very same thing has occurred and presumably will carry on um, occurring till the end of time. But nonetheless, it is a wonder of wonders. Um, and Annika Rice, you're a, a, a wonder of wonders. And I will uh, uh, thank you very much for, for jo joining me on, on this particular podcast. Thank you, Clive. Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a Stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.